regarding the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. When we say Catholic Church, we don't mean the Church of my youth. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. We mean there the word universal. And regarding baptism for the remission of the sins, we don't mean we as Protestants, well, as Reformed Protestants, we don't mean that um, water baptism is a converting ordinance, but that's another study. Okay, we're at Ezekiel 33. And we're, unlike what we've been doing here to four, mainly we've been sticking at, in the evening series, walking through Ezekiel, trying to take a chapter at a time, but there's a logical break at verse 20. So we'll look at verse 1 to verse 20 of Ezekiel 33. Hear the perfect word of our perfect and holy God. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming up upon the land, and blows on the trumpet, and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet, and does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But he had, but he had taken war, If he had taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man. I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth, and I'll give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. The wicked shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn away from his ways, and he does not turn away from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now is for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. <clears throat> when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and so he trusts in his righteousness, then he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered, but in the same iniquity of his will he is committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness, if a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes, which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has practiced will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, he will surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die for it. When the wicked man turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he'll live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right, O house of Israel. I will judge each of you according to his ways. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are our Father. You are the best of fathers, the Father of lights, the Father of mercies. We thank you that we can come boldly before you in the name of Christ, your beloved Son, our blessed and beloved Savior, and cry to Abba, Father. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord God. May the meditations of my heart, the words of my lips, be moved by you, Lord, informed by you, both the content and the tone, and for all of us. Give us those ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to love your word. May we be those who tremble at your word, even this word. To your glory we pray. Amen. The primary doctrine, which is I'm going to look at this, I'm going to divide this, there's a number of ways to divide this chapter, and I'll tell you the the outline that I'm going to follow. At least I, I think I'm going to follow. But the primary doctrine, and this is kind of the way that I look at a Bible passage, I'm looking for the main teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. I'm looking for the main theme. And the main theme clearly here is the prophet's duty or the watchman's duty. And in particular, as regards to warning against the incoming enemy, invading enemy, and then the application from verse 7 onward is that Ezekiel is this watchman and the evading army is sin. And so this is kind of the warning part of the minister's calling. And so God is calling Ezekiel, all ministers. I'm an ordinary minister. Ezekiel is an extraordinary minister, prophet, Old Testament. Apostles are extraordinary ministers inspired by the Holy Spirit. And ordinary ministers preach the inspired word of God, though I myself am uninspired. But this is the minister's calling, at least in part. Uh, regarding the warning of God's people away from the dangers of sin. That's the main teaching. And the way that I would outline this, at least the way that I want to follow, I want to look at the particular audience to whom it's directed. We'll see that it's to the Jews. And then it it comes on the heels of another audience that God has been busy speaking to. Then I I want to look at the speaker. Obviously, the divine speaker is the Lord. And then he says in verse 7, that I'm calling you, Ezekiel, as my prophet, as my watchman, to speak my word. So the, spe- the, the divine speaker is the Lord. The human speaker, inspired by the Lord, is this prophet, Ezekiel. And well, so audience, speaker, and then the content. And really in the content, I'm going to be a little bit more general. I'm not going to walk through all of these passages. There are some perplexing things that perhaps we could save for another day. I'm going to treat it in a more general idea of the minister's calling regarding the warning, the activity of warning God's people against the dangers of sin. <clears throat> so let's consider the audience. It's obviously chapter 33. We can all read. And if you've been with us since the very beginning, you remember the scheme that the Holy Spirit inspires Ezekiel to follow by way of audience. The first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, it's to the Jew. God speaks to the, the, the people of Judah, Jerusalem. You remember Assyria is already off in, Assy- in Assy- excuse me, Israel is already off in Assyrian captivity. And so even when we use the word Israel here, it's particularly in reference to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and they're, they're going off to Babylonian captivity. And so he's been speaking for 24 chapters to the Jews. And if you remember the general content of the first 24 chapters, and I was trying not to be redundant, laboriously so, is it's judgment. Um, and it, it, it's either judgment slash hyphen correction. So believers never receive judgment. We never receive judgment as regards to condemnation. Uh, Romans chapter 8. So true believer in the Old Testament, true believer in the New Testament, 
when you see a judgment passage like condemnation, like hell passage, it's never applied to the believer. When Christ was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was condemned. This is at Galatians 3, that we would not be condemned. So when we come to a, 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 you will receive judgment, that refers to the unbelieving among the professing people of God. So the Jews were a mixed multitude, like the church is a mixed multitude. So when God has words of denunciation against the unbelieving among the Jews, it's the unconverted Jew. Read uh, Revelation 2, Revelation 3 to, to the seven churches. There are unconverted people who profess to be Christians in those churches that Jesus says, I'm going to come and strike you with the sword of my mouth. So the church in the Old Testament, mixed multitude. The church in the New Testament, mixed multitude. So those 24 chapters, judgment against the household of God. Then I said hyphen correction. Because even the believers in the household of God, God has words of rebuke and chastisement. And he calls those who really do love the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth, who are living sinfully. God corrects them. And he's going to correct them, oftentimes through the very same meme that means that he chastises the unbeliever, that he judges the unbeliever, and that's through the Babylonian captivity. But if you remember in those 24 chapters, there's generally almost in every chapter, I would call it a golden thread of mercy that God's promising to bring in the Savior, that God will take you from the promised land, he'll let the land lie fallow for the 70 Sabbaths, land Sabbaths, and then he'll bring you back. There's always a thread of mercy. So he went from speaking to the Jew, and then from chapter 25 to 32, God inspired Ezekiel to speak words of judgment against the Gentile. And even there, even there, you remember there were the, in chapter 25, it was four or five particular Gentilish nations. Then God takes four whole chapters, two chapters to speak against, um, who is he speaking against? Phoenicians, uh, people in Tyre and so on, in Sidon. And then I think it's four chapters maybe that he speaks against Egypt. But even with Egypt and the Assyrians, there's still a golden thread of mercy. I'm going to judge some, but I'll condemn some others. Now we're back here in this chapter. We've returned back to the Jews. So Jews, Gentiles, back to the Jews. That's significant. There's a principle in the scripture. It runs from Genesis, it runs from Genesis clear through to the New Testament. It's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. God plucked out of all of the peoples of the earth. Read Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, you Israel and you alone I have chosen. And so God is a chosen people, the Jews. And God, when he speaks a word of judgment, he speaks to the Jew first. But then when he has a word of gracious salvation, he speaks to the Jew first. But then the, the principle that we saw, even in the book of Ezekiel, which mirrors the Romans 1, it, it's like 116, 117, something like that. And then Romans 2, then to the Gentile. It's the Great Commission, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And it follows that same scheme, that to those who are sinning and found in their sin, apart from Jesus, you'll be judged. To those who, by God's grace, have found the Lord Jesus Christ and then been forgiven of their sin, then it's a word of salvation. So for the Jews and the Gentiles who die in their sins apart from faith, they'll be judged, condemned. For the Gentiles and the Jews who are found in the Lord Jesus Christ and find remission for their sins, they'll be forgiven. So it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And I've referenced many times before, it's worth your reading. It's Isaiah 19. God promises to graft even Egyptians into Israel. The Bible calls us here, most of us here were raised 
physical Gentiles. Although in the land of my birth in Massachusetts, the town I lived in was perhaps 20% Jewish. So a good bit of Jewish folks. We were the only Gentiles. I don't know why my dad did this, but he did. We joined the JCC, the Jewish Community Club. We were the only Gentiles in the JCC. Why we did that, I don't know. But even in a large percentage of Jews, most folks that in the church have, are coming from Gentile stock, but we're not considered Gentiles anymore. The Bible refers to us, believers, whether Jewish believer or, or Christian believer, we are the Israel of God. The Bible calls us the Israel of God, Galatians chapter 6. The Bible calls us Christians who are scattered to the four corners, the diaspora. We are the scattered, the term applied to Israel. And so we learn, even with the scheme, Jew, Gentile, and now we're back to Jew. What does that teach us? We're still in the Old Testament epoch. Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, the, the Lord brings in the Son, Jesus Christ. He becomes incarnate. and He's born under the law that he would be condemned for his people under the law that we would be forgiven. We're not there yet. And, and so we're still in that Old Testament epoch. We're still in the epoch where the administration of the gospel is in types and shadows. And, and what, what, when God is still speaking to the Jew, even when he tells Ezekiel, I want you to warn them about their sin. I want you, I want you to see something. When you think of this kind of work that the minister has, Ezekiel has, of denouncing sin, which is not denouncing sin in the abstract. When God's preacher is called to denounce sin, it's sinners. So God doesn't hate just murder in the abstract or fornication in the abstract. It's fornicators. It's murderers. It's not just lying in the abstract. It's liars. So it's the moral agent that God tells his minister, you correct, rebuke, warn the moral agent. Does that make sense? So it's not theoretical. It's very, very personal. And even when we come to this kind of a work and we see that God says, now I want you to turn back to warning these people. I would argue this is such a token of God's mercy that God says to Ezekiel, keep warning them. Keep telling the Jews they're in danger of living in their sin and then ultimately condemnation if they don't turn to me and be saved. Why is that a mercy? Why is it a mercy for God to continuously and repeatedly warn the people of God about their sin? It, we, we sometimes think like this. Well, if God denounces sin, that means he's a mean God, he's vitriolic, he's pugnacious, those kind of things. It's just the opposite. If God hated people, you know how many chapters in the Bible there would be? There would be two chapters in the Bible. You would have chapter 1, chapter 2, excuse me. You'd have chapter 1, chapter 2, then you'd have chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then we'd all be in, in e e eternal torments. We'd have the fall of Adam and Eve, and there would, if God was truly a God of no love, you, would, you wouldn't have Genesis 3, 9 onward. It would just be condemnation. The very fact that God is still speaking to the people means what for these people? It's still the great day of grace. It's still the day of grace. It's still the day of mercy. So when we as Christians or as ministers, we, we the theme of this is warning people about their sin, the danger of sin. Flee from it and find forgiveness in God. When someone says, well, I don't really want to hear that. No, you really do want to hear that. Because the day that you no longer hear that and you're still in your sin is... It, is what God is warning the people against. You're going to die in your sin. Sometimes we think like this. 
It's loving to tell a person in their sin, enjoy yourself. You know, no, no worries, no problem. You're a cat, you want to marry another cat, that's okay. You're a dog, you want to turn yourself into a cat, that's okay. Whatever, whatever makes you feel good, that's okay. And we say that because we don't want to ruffle the feathers of the people we love about their sin. And we think that's loving. Oh, beloved, it's not loving. It's unloving to tell a person who's in their sin, on the broad path, everything's okay. Everything's a-okay. Now, the sinner may for a time think, that person is affirming me. They're really nice and they love me. But they don't. If we know the wages of sin is death, and even the second death, and we don't warn someone, that's very unloving. And for the minister whose charge is to do that, God then gets real serious with the minister and says, I'm going to reckon it to you. Oh, they're going to die in their sin, but I, 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 I hold you responsible for being faithful with my word. So Jew first, Gentile, that's the principle. Jew first, Gentile. And now he's still speaking to the Jews. We're in the Old Testament epoch. And it's the day of mercy. When God warns us against our sin, it's the day of mercy. I was wrestled uh, in my younger life with um, being addicted to uh, alcohol. And I can remember my dad who loved me madly. He came to me and said in no uncertain terms, you have thus, thus and so problem. And here are the bad things that this you will reap if you don't address this problem. Did that hurt my feelings? It hurt my feelings. Was that the thing that caused me to begin to turn around? Yes, it was. And it's very same with the, the minister of God. It may be painful to hear you're in sin. This is sin. I'm warning you of the danger of sin. But it may be the very thing, which is why God says, turn and live, turn and live. You see, if we never tell someone, turn and live, if we affirm them in their broad path activity for the minister, he is in part culpable for that because we have the words of eternal life. So the audience is to the Jew first, the chosen people, then the engrafted people, which is what we are. God has preser- is preserving the Jews here. Uh, he's preserving them against their Gentile uh, neighbors, their enemies. He's preserving them against the malice of the devil. And he's preserving his people, and I would argue the church, the New Testament church, even against our, our own flesh. We cannot. We, even the true believer, we are imperfect to say the, the least. We cannot destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe perseverance of the saints. It's not a license to sin. The moment God the Holy Spirit gives you faith in Jesus, you are forever joined to Jesus. You cannot sin away the grace of God in Christ. George Whitfield has some good quotes on that. Again, it's not a license to sin, but God preserves his people, and God is teaching us that here. Now, the speaker. So that's the audience, the Jewish people, Judah in particular. And now we mentioned um, the speaker. And we look at verse uh, 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying such and so. It's kind of typical language that God gives to the prophets and the word of the Lord came to such and so, or I was in the spirit on such and so day, and the vision of the Lord came to me in such and so. Verse 11, um, what does God say? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. The primary speaker is God, in particular, God the Holy Spirit is inspiring Ezekiel. Look at verse 7. As for you, son of man, I have appointed you, a watchman for the house of Israel, so that you'll hear a message from my mouth 
and give them a warning for me. The way the priests and the prophets, the priests and the prophets are all ministers in God's old church, the Old Testament people of God. And the priestly people were from a particular family, the tribe of Levi, and then for the high priests, from the, tri- from the family of Aaron. And for the priest, they represent the people to God. Now for the prophet, they were immediately inspired and chosen immediately by God, unlike the priest who came from a family. So God has immediately set this person apart, says, I'm calling you. And if the priest represents the people to, to God, the, the prophet represents God to the people. And if I could use the language of our a shorter catechism, apply how is Christ our prophet? Christ is our prophet in revealing God's will for our salvation by his word and by his spirit. So when you come to the prophets, they can be really, really heavy. If you're not reading them with your Christological lenses on, I think they become they can become inordinately laborious to read through them because all you're seeing is judgment, 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 judgment. But if you read with your Christological lenses on, knowing that the prophets have been sent by God for the primary purpose of preaching salvation, then the message becomes lighter and, and we're able to receive it better. And I'm not done playing the denunciation language that we find in the prophets, but the prophet's job is to turn people away from their sin towards God. Sometimes we say, not so much, I see the Ruckmanites doing a little bit better, but sometimes you'll see people on the side of the road, the wages of sin is death, or the, or the wages of sin is hell, or something like that. They'll read the first half of Romans six twenty three, and then they stop right there. That's not, that's not gospel preaching. That's law preaching without the gospel preaching, and the law is meant to drive us to the gospel. So when you see the prophets, it's usually not, you're all going to go to hell, the end. It's not that. You'll, you'll see the preaching of the law, the wrath of God for the breach of the law, acting as a, a tutor to drive us to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the language of um, Galatians 3. So the speaker is God. We would do well, the people of God would do well. I know we're Protestants. Most Protestants don't use that word anymore, but we're Protestants. And we're consciously Protestants. Reformed Protestants, hyphen, 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 Puritan, hyphen, 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 but we're Protestants. And one of the principles that we believe is biblical is the principle of sola scriptura, what I pray, that the Bible is our guide for what we believe doctrinally and what we do practically. And the Bible says the Bible is the word of God. And I know that you're going to say this circular reasoning, however you want to call it, I'll dress it up with a fancy word, it's presuppositional, it's circular reasoning. The Bible says it's the word of God, it's the word of God, and we have to receive it as such. And the reason this is significant is if you come to the Bible and you think the Bible is not the word of God, you should just close the Bible, go out and play golf, or go swimming. Um, because what part is the Word of God? Are we going to take a vote? Remember the Jesus Seminar? Was it late 70s, early 80s? Where a bunch of scholars sat around with colored golf balls, and, and the, the different colors indicated how much they really, really thought it was the Word of God, or that part was the error. Well, then man is judge over God's Word. So is this the Word of God or not the Word of God? And God says to his people, this is my word. The reason this is significant, I just mentioned the cats marrying cats and dogs turning themselves into cats. I'm trying to be um, winsome and not obnoxious. However, the particular sins are obnoxious. And when God says, I denounce these as sin, it's sin. And we have to call sin what God calls sin. 
And I mentioned the previous struggles I had as a young fellow and going to a particular self-help group. We changed the word drunk, which is a sin, into the words character defect or a disease. So I had a disease or I had a character defect rather than a sin. Beloved, I don't want to enter into a big debate on that. It's dangerous to change what God calls sin into anything other than sin. And I don't mean... I don't mean in, a, in an obnoxious way. There are a lot of people that commit sins for lots of reasons. And, and when we speak to them, speak to the person caught in the sin like you were speaking to your son or your daughter. Like you love them. Do you know what I mean? Because if you don't love them, then you're just going to hit them with your righteous, self-righteousness Bible bat and say, I'm being faithful, here's your sin, bonk. Go to the person like you actually really love them and you want them to find forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ. But still, the danger is, and I mentioned the mom and dad, this is true with our kiddos. My kiddos are big having kiddos. When our kiddos grow up and our kiddos get involved in sin, and we love them, sometimes we're tempted when they won't let it up to go and they're changing the definition, we are tempted to change the definition because we love them out of solidarity with our children. Beloved, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, I'm not picking on parents. I'm a parent. I have been tempted by this many times before. If you love son and daughter more than me, what does he say next? You're not worthy of me. So we have to say to our, our buttercup, buttercup, I love you. That is, not you. that is not your personal choice. That is sin. And I'm praying to God that you would repent and live, which is what God is calling Ezekiel. And this is not for the faint-hearted. And the Holy Spirit is the one that inspires this. He tells Ezekiel, you go out with this. Ezekiel loves these people. He's called out from among them. He has a solidarity. I mentioned the love aspect. But we cannot change the word of God. The word of God is static. It, is, it doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. People don't change. I, I know people think we're enlightened. We are not enlightened. We, we're more genteel because we have more money. If World War III really started and there were really starving people out in the street right now, you would see how fast that genteel veneer went away. We're not more enlightened. The people are the same. Unless we're changed by God the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, we are the same. And, and so when someone says, this is what I want to do or say, and God's word says this is sin... This is a call. This chapter is to be faithful with the word of God. It's scary business. It's much nicer to say Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I admit it. It's much nicer to say that. It's way scary to say. <laughs> I grew up using the word Jesus Christ as a curse word my whole, my whole life. I had to go to one of my parents after I was converted who I loved with tears and said, Oh, it hurts my feelings. Please, with tears in my eyes, please don't use Jesus Christ as a curse word. Please. That's pain. It's painful stuff. It's scary to be faithful to the word of God regarding sin. This is not, we just think like, let's be Calvinists and beat up on Arminians about election. No, that's, that's cheap. That's so cheap. Let's be Bible Christians and hate sin the way that God hates sin and love holiness the way that God loves holiness. Let's first hate the sin in our own lives and then we have a platform to say to another person, you show, oh, I was guilty as charged, drunk as a skunk, and God changed me. Fornicator, God changed me. But, but 
that's sin. God says it. And when someone says, who gives you the right to say, well, I didn't make the rules. God made the rules. And so God is calling his minister, certainly by application, us. A couple of things that we learn about this. Um, obviously, as I'm mentioning, the, the human uh, speaker is, is Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel, tell the people that I sent you. And this is significant. Ezekiel is a true prophet. So in the, in, the, in the Bible, let's go prophets, Old Testament, pastor, preacher, teacher, New Testament, whatever we want to call them. But let's go pro- prophet, teacher. There were true prophets in the Old Testament and false prophets in the Old Testament. There were true teachers in the New Testament or apostles, preachers, and then false teachers in the New Testament. So God tells Ezekiel to tell the people that he is a true prophet, that God has truly called him, and that the words he preaches are the very words of God. So God requires his man to say, I'm called by God, and I'm telling you the truth of God's word. This is true. This is in part to engender confidence in the prophet of God, in God's word, by the people, but also to distinguish him from the false prophets. If you read the book of Jeremiah, which is written in the same time frame as the Babylonian captivity, and they're both preaching um, to the same kind of folks. Daniel also written in the same time frame. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah has like five, six, seven places in seven different chapters where they den- God denounces the false prophet. And he says there, you, you run, but I never sent you. You're preaching, but it's not my words. It's the words that come from your own imagination. And the people love you. And they hate my true prophet. Because my true prophet comes along and says, I'm coming from a holy God. And he hates sin. And he especially finds sin obnoxious among his holy people of God. And it aggravates your sin. And please stop sinning. (laughs) And repent and turn back to God. And the people of God don't very much like being told by their prophet that they're sinning. But whereas the false prophets, what would they do? Oh, Oh, you're the people of God. Everything's wonderful. You're wonderful. (laughs) Everything. And actually, what you're doing by way of sin, that's not really sin. God's okay with it. If you're okay with it, God's okay with it. You know, Christians do this nowadays. They do all sorts of goofy things in worship. And I'm not picking on you if you say tomato or tomato or you like guitars and we like violins. I'm not picking on that. But sometimes we think like this. If I like something, then God likes it. And God likes it because I like it. That is wrong. The way that it's supposed to work is what God likes, we are supposed to like. And what God likes that we don't like, we are supposed to repent. That's how that that works. But there were false prophets that were the plague of the Old Testament people of God. And they were constantly saying to the people, don't listen to the prophets who preach sin, which is what God tells Ezekiel. Tell the people the dangers of sin. You're going to have pain in this life or pain and shame in the next life, to, 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 to quote Matthew Henry. And uh, maybe just back up. Matthew Henry, I, I recommend this to your reading. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where the man is having relations with his mother, hopefully his stepmother, but hopefully, I mean, it's just obnoxious. And at the very end, God says, put him out of the church. Matthew Henry's commentary on that, he actually thinks the man is an elder and he thinks he's a minister doing this. But, but he, he, he interacts with particularly um, sins of sexual immorality. And Matthew Henry says on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
that you will either have by sexual immorality pain and shame in this life and then if it's unrepented of pain and shame in the next life and God requires the minister not just on that one particular sin but sin walk through the Ten Commandments and then spiritually applied to tell people pain and shame in this life or pain and shame in the next life if we die unconverted and unreconciled in Christ but that was the faithful minister whereas the unfaithful minister was exceedingly popular because what did he do he said everything was great Will you be preaching a sermon series on sin like Prophet Ezekiel? No, no. He's the bad guy. I am the good guy. We won't be preaching a sermon series on sin. We'll be preaching a sermon series on your best life now. (laughs) Or whatever. And what do the people say? You know what? You keep that kind of preaching up, you're going to earn yourself a raise. And they start dishing out the money. You get the best parking spot, the best car. I'm being a little silly, but that's exactly how it worked. And God says to the people of God, I'm sending you a true prophet. And how do you know? And we could apply this to today. How do you know a man is a true preacher? One, he better have a Bible in front of him. He better be preaching the Bible. Does he preach the law? Does he preach the gospel? Does he know the gospel? What is the gospel? Right? Is it all of Jesus Christ and his blood washing our sins away that we receive him by faith alone? Which is essentially the the Reformed doctrine of justification. Or is it you plus Jesus, which is not the gospel? And then in application to what we're looking at, a way to tell a false preacher from a true preacher, prophet, what do they say about sin? What do they say about sin? Do they ever say things about sin? If you walk in and the the minister says, I was in a church, I won't tell you what church, a supposedly Bible-leaving church, and he said, I'm going to tell you, the God of the Bible has no wrath I remember thinking, I knew he was going to get around to an altar call at the end because I'm in the church that does altar calls at his church. I'm thinking, how are you going to do the altar call? How are you going to do come to Jesus without the, the bad news? How are you going to do that? And he did, but it was come to Jesus as a, as a pal, not as a savior. But one way to distinguish a true minister from a false minister, from Ezekiel, from, from say a false prophet, is what does he say about sin? Does he call sin, sin? Is he calling sin, sin from the Bible? Or does he say, we don't really deal with that messy business of sin? Beloved, you know I love J.C. Ryle. And J.C. Ryle says, if you don't believe the bad news, then the good news makes, there's no sense. It's the answer for the bad, bad news. So God tells his man, I want you to go to the people like a watchman on the wall, and I want you to warn them. And you see the, the pictures are appropriate. Israel, I mean, even Israel now, though it's not what, theocratic Israel. The Israel now is not theocratic Israel of the Bible, but the the Israel of the Bible, they're surrounded by all their enemies. And the prophet is like the watchman, who is a a soldier, by the way. And so the figure for the prophet, being a watchman, is the figure of a soldier. And this strikes a a lot of young guys think I'm called to ministry in the reform camp um, because they like to read theology and smoke pipes and drink uh, single malt scotch, which I, I find silly, by the way. But they just, that's what they think the ministry is. But the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, you're not sitting around with a tweed jacket um, thinking big thoughts. You are a what? You're a soldier. You suffer hardship like a good soldier. So God uses the figures of a soldier getting up on a watchtower, looking out for enemies, for the minister. So when people want to be ministers, whether they're young or whether they're old, you're in the Lord's army. This This is... You are looking out. Part of the calling of the minister 
is to look out over the landscape and look for the approaching enemies that are seeking to attack the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this case, it would be a foreign uh, invading army, but he makes the application to sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the part of the minister's calling is to be, where Paul says, we're not unaware of his schemes, to be aware, how does the enemy attack? When does the enemy attack? What are the common snares of the devil? And then to tell the people of God. So the faithful prophet is a soldier, which means, as I said, he has to suffer hardship. Most of you all know this. Most guys get in the ministry and within seven years, they're gone. It's like marriage. A lot of people start marriage and within seven years, they're gone. Why? Because they find out it is tough plowing sometimes. They're not prepared. We don't do anyone any benefit by telling them, you know what, Buttercup, it's easy squeezy. It isn't easy squeezy. This is a battle. The world, the flesh, and the devil battle. And so the minister has to come into the ministry knowing I'm entering into the Lord's service as a soldier, willing to suffer hardship. And then also he has to get up on some high place. And in order for this watchman to do his job, he has to know what the enemy is. He has to know what the enemy looks like. And how does he discern that? He has to be a man of the Bible. It's not books a million. It's not read psychological books. I'm not picking on that. I'm not, I'm not picking on mental health counseling. There's a place for all of that. But he has to be a man saturated in the word. And he has to be a man of holiness because sin is antithetical to holiness. So he has to know it experimental in it propositionally and then experimentally. And the other thing that Ezekiel would need to do or the faithful prophet a watchman would need to do he actually has to get up on the watchtower and start looking and what do I mean by that in seminary I seminary is necessary I think it is necessary I know there are extraordinarily gifted guys like Spurgeon and some other guys that were self-gift self-taught but they were extraordinary and ordinarily the way that God equips men is he somehow there is a, a time of study however that works and then from study to application And from application of this man getting up on that watchtower, you have to get out of bed and do. You have to work. The pastorate, if I can make application, is an easy job to be lazy. Really easy. Um, It's an impossible job if you do it rightly, but it's, it's an easy job to be lazy because you can kid yourself that you're working. You can just like read what you want to read, play with the internet, but you're not working. The figure that we have here is of a soldier. You better get out of bed you better get up on that watchtower and you better start working. So there's the study part of the calling and then there's the doing part of the calling. You better start preaching. You better get out among the people. You better start denouncing sin. And the part that I referenced earlier that this man is drawn out from the people of God teaches a couple of things that are necessary. Um, If... If ministers don't love the, the people of God, they need to leave. You really do need to leave. You can see this in a minister. If he's just getting a paycheck or he doesn't really love the people, you've seen this on the TV. Sometimes they'll like, they're yelling at the people. One of the benefits of choosing out the prophet from among the people of God, it's their family. It's, it's a, we, we could hyphenate it, brother preacher, brother herald. It's one of solidarity. It's one of love. That's why Jesus is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 15, drawn out from the brothers. So if you go to your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister and you're newly converted, you have that filial attachment. The prophet was, was 
preaching to brothers and sisters. As they go, he goes. And it's that principle that Paul says, we preach and teach are the principle of love. And with the principle of love, when you're teaching the wages of sin, I mentioned some of my my past sins. And I come from a, a particular kind of family context. I have shared with my sisters sins that they have done and I have done. I found forgiveness. And the way that I share Jesus Christ is with a broken spirit, a contrite heart, with tears, because I love them. And so Ezekiel is to have the same, that same love and the desire in denouncing sin is not to just check the box and say, aha, I've denounced another sinner. It's that they would repent. It's that they would turn from their sin. Now, whether they do or not, that's God's business. But the prophet is responsible to be faithful with the word of God. That's what God says. If you tell them, you tell them. I, I have had the privilege, and I do consider it a privilege, of ministering the gospel at 36 funerals. I've been here January 21 years. I've had the privilege of ministering the gospel 36 times in funerals. Um, I'm coming up on my mom's one-year death anniversary, and that was a particularly hard funeral to preach my mother's funeral. Over 100 people, most of which who don't know the Lord, most of which don't go to church, are hearing this, this message of why. And the way that I deal with preaching a message that for the most part, many people say, no thanks, sin, condemnation, or finding forgiveness in Jesus, no thank you. The way that I comfort myself is from this passage. I've done my duty before the Lord. I've told them. If I'm in a a group of a hundred people in a funeral and I tell them about the dangers of sin and the freedom from sin in Christ Jesus, I know those hundred people have no excuse. They they have heard the gospel. They've heard the law. They've heard the wages of sin. And they've heard the answer. And you say, well, what good is it? What do you mean, what good is it? People really do believe the wages of sin is death. And people really do find forgiveness in Jesus. Some people really repent. We may not live to see it. You may share this message of sin and then warn people from sin and tell them, repent of your sin and look to Jesus. And they may, may, may never repent and believe in front of you. But a year down the line, five years down the line, ten years down the line, I mentioned J.C. Ryle. I forget how many kids he had, four or five. Most of his kids were unconverted. And he said, maybe God will convert my kids in my lifetime, but maybe he'll convert my kids after I'm dead. Oh, beloved, we're not responsible for the results. We're responsible to be faithful with the word, even in the business of sin, always for the hope that they would find forgiveness in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.